Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. The Trudeau government has finally announced its new national housing strategy with some big promises like a benefit for low-income Canadians and a commitment to build 100,000 new affordable housing units. Employment Minister Patty Haidu is here to talk about the plan and respond to critics. Is it the best impression of Justin Trudeau yet? A video made by my radio colleague Lucas Meyer is making the rounds online. Lucas joins me to talk about his impressions and give us a taste of his imitations of some popular political figures. We're more than eight months away from the legalization of marijuana and cities across the country are calling for cash as they struggle to prepare for the realities of recreational pot. We're joined by the president of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities who tells us about the challenges that cities are facing and why they deserve a piece of the revenue pie. We end off our show with John Geddes and Paul Wells joining me for the McLean's panel and we sign off for the last time. For your politics, for your power, welcome to the final episode of McLean's on the Hill. Even one Canadian sleeping in the street is one too many. This week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiled his long-awaited national housing strategy, which includes some major promises. The $40 billion 10-year plan will create 100,000 new affordable housing units. It will repair or renovate up to 300,000 existing units and it will introduce a new housing benefit for low-income Canadians to help them pay the rent. One of the goals of the overall strategy is to cut homelessness in half and prevent more than 300,000 families from losing their homes. The strategy is being widely praised by stakeholders and observers, but there are some who say the plan comes up short. Joining me now on the phone to address the criticisms and a little bit later talk about harassment in Canada's entertainment industry is Employment Minister Patty Haidu. Minister Haidu, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Cormac. You have a unique perspective on this issue as a politician because you were the director of a homeless shelter before coming to Parliament Hill. Uh, so before we get into the details and some of the criticisms uh, of this plan, Tell us why this is so important to you and, and give us your perspective on why this matters. Uh, well, listen, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, my, the job that I was uh, performing just before I was elected was the executive director of Northwestern Ontario's largest homeless shelter. And uh, typically we had 77 individuals using our services each and every night, two hot meals where we would serve somewhere in the range of 150 to 200 meals a day to people struggling to, uh, to get those basic needs met. And uh, what I can tell you is that many people wanted to not be in those circumstances. As a matter of fact, all of them would want to not be in those circumstances, but there were uh, you know, many barriers in their way to actually moving forward to, to finding a safe place to live. And without that safe place to live, without a place to call home, it's impossible for people to reach those, those next level of goals, whether that might be employment, whether it might be getting your kids back so that you can restore your family unit, whether it might be, uh, you know, getting a job that, uh, that you can sustain yourself with. So uh, to me, this is the foundational piece for healthy communities and for a prosperous society. 
if there is a housing crisis and if this is such an important issue, then why are we seeing most of the dollars flow after the next election? Why aren't we seeing most of the money come right now when it's needed? Well, we've taken action already in a number of ways. And as you know, we've been building housing, for example, on First Nations communities with somewhere in the range of 8,800 houses already built. We've uh, significant investments in provinces and territories so that they could protect housing stock and do those repairs and renovations. The first affordable housing build in my community was completed this summer as a result of uh, these efforts. And so, we, you know, we, we've, been, we've, we've been working on the things that we can work on immediately. But what we knew is that this isn't something that we could achieve alone and we had to work with partners and uh, whether that be municipal partners territorial uh, provincial partners to get this right uh, I think the praise that you're hearing is because we've worked so closely in consultation with everyone from housing advocates and not-for-profit organizations all the way up to provinces and territories and that is truly a reflection of the time that we're taking to ensure that we get this right in a way that is going to have meaningful difference for Canadians from coast to coast was part of this a political uh, political decision pushing a lot of the money off until after the next election so that you can campaign on this promise in the next vote? No, not at all. This is about actually working together to leverage the money that we're prepared to invest. So, you know, the call for proposals for uh, joint-funded uh, housing uh, approaches is uh, is going to be held this spring. So uh, we're moving as quickly as we can. And as I said, uh, you know, there are a number of ways that we've been taking action immediately. But this is a long-term strategy that will provide a foundation for housing for this country for generations to come. You know, the commitment to enshrining uh, housing in legislation and ensuring that this country is committed to uh, pursuing affordable housing for Canadians, I think is a legacy piece. And so I'm very proud of this strategy. The $40 billion plan also requires provinces and the private sector to chip in. So if you don't have all those commitments in place, will, how do you know that you're going to have the intended impact when not all the stakeholders have really signed on to the spending yet? Provinces, territories, municipalities, not-for-profit organizations have been pleading with the federal government to come to the table and partner with them in a meaningful way to create affordable units to ensure that people have access to affordable housing for a very long time. I can tell you that as a housing activist myself in my own community, it was disheartening to say the least that we did not have the partnership of a federal government at that time led by the Conservatives. So I think the enthusiasm is there and you can see that by the types of um, comments that you're hearing all the way from municipalities to housing activists to uh, not-for-profit organizations that, that are uh, uh, national level organizations working on housing to provinces and territories that is the nature of those discussions how you know how we'll partner and how we'll meaningfully contribute to uh, alleviating homelessness and, and ensuring the affordability of housing in this country are those conversations and the difficult conversations that are ahead but the commitment to doing that together I am uh, certain is there so you, you, you have no doubts that uh, the others will sign on to this spending? I have no doubt that the others understand at, the, uh, at a fundamental level that doing nothing about this project is way, or about this problem is way more expensive than an approach that actually looks to invest in uh, what ultimately could be called uh, a foundational component to community wellness and prosperity. When the Prime Minister said, housing is a human right what exactly does that mean from the government's point of view does that mean that you're going to make sure that everyone in canada has a roof over their head or is it just a phrase 
No, what it means is that we are committed to enacting legislation that will require the federal government to maintain a national housing strategy that will prioritize the housing needs of the most vulnerable, that we will ensure that, uh, you know, we have a, a mechanism to regularly report to Parliament on how we're reaching, you know, those targets that we've set out in the national housing strategy, that um, the legislative approach will ensure that, that a housing strategy is a fundamental component of being a Canadian and that, uh, that Canadians can count on a federal government that is meaningfully contributing to affordable housing in this country, especially for those people who are the most vulnerable. Now, one of the goals of, of this plan is to cut homelessness in half over the 10 years. And that's a, that's a very hefty goal to put in place for a government. You know, as, as much as there are many people who want to get off the streets and need a home, uh, the unfortunate fact is that there, there are a lot of people who are on the streets because of issues like mental health problems or addictions, and they need other help that helps get them back into a home and, and back to a normal life why wasn't there anything carved out of this strategy that really addressed the issues of mental health and addictions? Well, you know, the increase, that, um, the $6 billion that my colleague, Minister Philpott, committed to the provinces and territories for mental health uh, supports in the last budget would be, I would say, a tangible demonstration to our understanding that none of these work in silos, that you're absolutely right, that oftentimes when you have prolonged experiences of poverty or homelessness, you will have uh, a worsening mental health. You may have substance use issues. Uh, you may have all kinds of other barriers, but that's the nature of, you know, uh, the work that we're doing at the federal level and the nature of our partnerships with provinces is understanding that people, uh, you know, people don't typically come to the table with one problem, that there needs to be a holistic approach to this. And that's why it's exciting to see provinces step forward and come up with innovation and, and supports. <clears throat> Just in my province alone, for example, the province of Ontario is, is you know, placing meaningful support to, uh, you know, in, in place in their systems to ensure that when they actually do get someone in unit and take someone off the street, that those uh, mental health and those uh, social work supports are there so that the person can maintain that unit. And I just wanted to switch gears uh, to a different topic uh, because you were the minister who's put forward legislation in terms of dealing with uh, harassment in the workplace. And uh, we did have ACTRA, the union representing entertainers and performers and actors in Canada, um, holding a meeting in Toronto. And they've announced that they want to introduce a code of conduct clearly defining expectations of appropriate and inappropriate behavior, um, enforcements and consequences for those who who uh, are the perpetrators of harassment. They also want to take a zero tolerance stance. Of course, all of this coming as we deal with a lot of scandals coming out of Hollywood, but Hollywood North also not uh, immune from this type of behavior. What's your reaction to hearing what ACTRA is trying to do to deal with the issue of harassment in the entertainment industry? Well, I think it's a great step in the right direction. I think that, you know, the legislation that we're proposing follows a very similar model, whereas employers would be regulated to have a plan and a policy in place that uh, talks about how they'll prevent uh, workplace harassment and sexual violence all the way up to what they'll do if someone uh, experiences that uh, in the workplace. So, you know, to have uh, groups, uh, organizations, union groups talking about this and thinking about what those policies and plans might look like, uh, and they you know, and the education piece that has to go along with it. That's, uh, I, I feel very encouraged that uh, people are proactively thinking about this. What else would you like to see from the entertainment industry in Canada when it comes to harassment issues? Well, I think, you know, um, 
from my perspective, workplaces, you know, we can't tolerate harassment and sexual violence in our workplaces. There's no room for that. And so I think workplaces across the country, uh, I would hope, are taking this seriously. There's an economic argument for this as well. And employers who are smart employers are already uh, putting into place, a, you know, very strong uh, policy and very strong practices around protecting their employees from this kind of behavior. And they're doing that because they know that they can't afford the losses that come uh, that are associated without taking serious action on this issue. And those losses can be things like people losing days, uh, you know, staying home because of mental stress or anxiety, uh, all the way up to, you know, leaving the industry or leaving the work the, the, the workplace for other employment opportunities because uh, their complaints aren't taken seriously. So I'm encouraged, as I said, and I think that the legislation that we're introducing for federally regulated sectors will uh, strengthen the obligation of employers to ensure that, that they're taking their responsibilities as employers seriously. Minister Patty Haidu, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the national housing strategy and uh, the issue of harassment in the workplace. Thank you very much, Cormac. All right. Once again, that was Employment Minister Patty Haidu speaking with me about the government's new national housing strategy, as well as the issue of harassment in the entertainment industry. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, why a video of one of my colleagues in Calgary has gone viral in the Canadian political world, why cities are calling for funding as they struggle to prepare for legalized pot, and what the McLean's panel has to say about the government's housing policy and the challenge with ISIS fighters returning home. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, Canadian municipalities want guaranteed revenue streams from the legalization of marijuana. This is they scramble to change bylaws and regulations ahead of a new recreational pot regime. And Paul Wells and John Geddes are here for the final McLean's panel. But first, this week, a colleague of mine in Calgary created quite a bit of a buzz in the Canadian political world because of a video he posted to YouTube. It was a video of impressions of politicians, among other celebrities. That colleague of mine is 660 News reporter Lucas Meyer, who joins me now on the phone from Calgary. Lucas, thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me, C-Mac. All right. Well, you, you kind of became a bit of a viral hit with this video. And before I ask you to do any impressions at all, I, I do want to ask you how you got into this. How did you get into impressions? You know, I've honestly, it goes back a long time. Uh, I've been doing, I, I started when I was a kid, just I would imitate films that I like, movies like for my family, uh, Ace Ventura, Spaceballs, The Sandlot, you know, all the classics. And I would just do them for my family and friends, and they would just get a laugh out of it. And so as I got older, I just kind of kept doing stuff like that. And then, I don't know, I've just always kind of had a good knack for not just imitating, like, well-known people, but my best impressions are probably those of, like, my family and, and my friends and actually other reporters and other people in the news media, believe it or not. Um, and so it's something that I've just kind of always done that people have enjoyed. And so the guy who I'm speaking to in the video is Will Nault from 960 The Fan. And he's always said, you should do a video. We should do a video. And so we, we finally did. We had some empty space and uh, we had some empty time at the BT studio, the city studio. 
And we just did it. It took about 10, I think 15 minutes and I edited it myself and that was it. And within 24 hours, you already had something like 13,000 views on the video on YouTube, or at least the one that I saw. What do you look for when you're, when you're trying to imitate somebody, when you say, okay, this is a public figure that I think I can, I think I can do a good impression of. So uh, tell yeah. me about, about the craft. I think it, well, first of all, I mean, it, it's very flattering of you to say the word craft as if I'm in any way some sort of a professional, which I'm not, <laughs> and I certainly don't pretend to be. Um, but in terms of, I think what makes any impressionist good, I think it's just picking up little things I think are very important that, that contribute greatly. Um, you know, with Batman, it's the way that he, you know, he always kind of changes the direction of his eyes. And with Nenshi, it's, it's, it's the way that he emphasizes certain words. And with the prime minister, I think just the way that he does the Oz is obviously extremely important. Um, and the way that he's, he almost always is smiling right before, as he's listening to a question. I think those little tiny um, intricacies are important. But I got to ask you a question, C-Mac, because you're actually in Ottawa. I have seen some, like I saw from retweeted and I saw Rempel retweeted. But is it getting any actual run on the Hill? People are talking about it. Uh, I know some people, <laughs> and look, you, you even had the National Post write an that, article yeah, yeah. about your impressions asking, is this the best Justin in true Trudeau impression? <laughs> it's very flattering. It's honestly really flattering. And, you know, you're just doing it for a laugh, like really for your colleagues and your friends. And uh, I don't know how, how viral we can really consider it, but it, honestly, C-Mac, it's just, it's a, it was a lot of fun to do. And I'm really glad that people are enjoying it. And, um, I had, it's, what's really ironic is that I actually had a really, really busy day at work yesterday um, with our regular jobs, as you understand, and today too. So I don't even know if I've really, if I've, I've really come to contemplate the full extent of the uh, exposure. Uh, but it, it's just very flattering, and it's all for a good laugh. So I'm glad. I'm honestly glad that anybody's enjoying it. Now, be honest. I mean, is this how you spend your Friday nights? You, you stand in front of a mirror and say, uh, I'm going to try no, and nail the whoever no, the newsmaker is of the day. Listen, that's a great question. I got to be honest. My wife told me this yesterday. She said, Lucas, I love you so much. You know, but if I have to hear Don Cherry talking about, you know, don't show yet one more time, like you're in trouble. You know what I mean? So I actually don't. It really it just comes naturally, you know. There's some that I wanted to make sure that I, that there's some, I'll put it this way. For the actual video, I practiced a few beforehand. Like I practiced my Batman a couple times beforehand just to make sure that it, it felt right. But no, this is not how I spend my Friday <laughs> nights in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> and I have to say, you, you do a bang on impression of, of Nahed Nenshi, uh, Calgary's yeah. mayor. So I will ask you then to help us out a little bit with a, a few impressions. And of course, this is a political show. So yeah. let's start with uh, some politicians. Who do you want to do an impression of first? Uh, listen, you know what, C-Mac, you just roll them off and I'll do my best. All right. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you're on the show. Let me know what you had for breakfast today. Uh, we know that Canadians uh, are more interested in the key uh, important issues of the country. Uh, so uh, what, what I had for breakfast uh, or lunch or dinner uh, is, uh, I think, not uh, a very uh, important discussion. What is uh, an important discussion is the economy and the environment and health care. 
And uh, that is the conversation uh, that I think uh, Canadians want to have. So, Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi, are you going to commit the funds to build a new arena for the Calgary Flames? You know, this is a really, really important issue, but I have to tell you, Cormac, that there has to be some clarity here. And I've said many, many times before, and I will continue to say, the city is always at the table. And we currently await uh, the Flames to come back to the table. And so I think it's really, really, really important that we have all the details out there for the public to see, and then we can make the best decision based on the best evidence and that the city can have a direct benefit on whatever decision we decide to have. All right. Well, maybe you can get some more money once the oil from the oil stand starts pumping down to the U.S. with the approvals of the Keystone XL pipeline. U.S. President Donald Trump, what do you think of the Keystone pipeline? Look, oil is very important it's dark very dark we got to bring coal we got to bring oil and gas we got to bring energy great energy all sorts of energy green energy high energy i don't like low energy cormac you sound low energy i hate to tell you i hate to tell you you sound like low energy look i love mclean's it's a wonderful wonderful magazine but look you guys have to bring back better energy stop being fake news look back to keystone we are making america great again in the keystone i'll tell you Keystone is one of the best keys. Black Keys, tremendous band, wonderful band. But the Keystone is my favorite key. Lucas Meyer, thank you so much for your impressions today for this show. Really appreciate it. And if you want to check out the video of his impressions of politicians and others like Donald Cherry and uh, Gary Bettman, uh, head to YouTube. All you have to do is type in Lucas Meyer and you will find it. Lucas, thank you so much. Thanks, Cormac. Anytime, and hello to everybody back in the back in the OTC. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, we'll hear from the head of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities about how cities are struggling to prepare for legalized pot. And John Geddes and Paul Wells are here for the McLean's panel. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, Paul Wells and John Geddes are here to weigh in on some of the top political stories of the week with the McLean's panel. But first, the clock is ticking on the legalization of marijuana, and cities across the country are struggling to get everything in order before pot goes on sale by July of next year. And as municipalities scramble to change or create bylaws and rules to handle a recreational market for cannabis, they're also looking for a piece of the revenue pie. Joining me on the phone to speak about the marijuana challenges for municipalities is Jenny Gerbassi, the president of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the deputy mayor for the city of Winnipeg. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you. So how prepared are cities right now for the legalization of marijuana? Well, cities and communities are where cannabis is going to be sold and consumed. So it's we're right on the front lines of this, and we're working really hard with our members to get them as prepared as possible. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts because we don't necessarily know um, exactly how everything's going to be decided in the frameworks put together by the provinces and the feds. So we're preparing our members as much as possible. Um, we've produced a primer um, with some basic information, and we're working on a much more comprehensive 
uh, guidelines to identify exactly, you know, there's bylaw changes, there's uh, licensing potentially, there's all sorts of issues that are going to affect many, many of our um, city departments and affect communities of all sizes across the country. So what are you struggling with exactly? Is it the timeline? Is it the fact that uh, not all the regulations and details have been worked out yet from the federal and provincial levels? What, What are the issues that you're facing? Well, I think an important issue is that we expect there will be startup costs as well as long-term costs sustainably going forward. And we want to make sure that this policy that we know is coming can be implemented uh, across Canada safely and sustainably. So uh, the costs are part of that, and we need to be at the table to be part of that discussion. Do you face difficulties as well with the fact that you're not even sure how the regulations and uh, all the provincial and uh, federal rules will look? Well, it, the challenge of that is determining the exact costs because we don't have all the, that, those um, the, the framework in place yet. But we're working at that. We're looking. We're trying to determine that as much as we can and, and gathering as much information as we can. But we do know and we're trying to make sure um, that all orders of government understand that we are on the front lines of this. We're the ones dealing with it on the street with our, our police forces, our licensing, our bylaws, uh, many, many issues that we're going to, and we're going to require some sort of revenue stream to um, address both the startup costs as well as ongoing costs. And so those are discussions that need to happen um, and are happening now. We're here in Ottawa at our advocacy days in Ottawa, uh, meeting with many, many members of Parliament this week. And this is a big topic for us here. I guess I should have phrased it this way. I mean, when it comes to policy, is it difficult for cities across the country to plan and set their, their own laws appropriately when not all the regulations and everything has even been finalized at the federal level, let alone the provincial level? Oh, yes, and we're, we're rising to that challenge as the, uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities represents all communities, large and small, across Canada. And so we're trying to help do what we can to meet that challenge and prepare them. So uh, we are trying to put together, you know, for example, sample bylaws, uh, you know, different um, issues that they may be needing to deal with and helping them however we can. And we're working on a more comprehensive guidebook for that as well. So, yeah, it's a challenge, but um, we we know it's coming and we want to be ready for it so that we can implement it safely and sustainably. Is the timeline a bit of a difficulty as well? Well, it is what it is. I mean, we, we know um, that's what the timeline is. And so we're being as proactive um, as we can. And, you know, the important thing is that the the discussion is happening with us and that there's an awareness from uh, the other orders of government that we are a key player in implementing this and we're on the front lines of it and we need to have uh, the the support to implement it properly, safely and sustainably for it to be a success. Do you know how many cities have already passed new bylaws to deal with the issue of legalization or if any at all? I'm not sure about you know, actually passing them, but I certainly know in my city of Winnipeg where our administration is working away at, you know, determining what bylaw changes are needed. And, you know, again, we're waiting for all the pieces of the puzzle to be very clear to us. But that work has already commenced in many, many of uh, the communities we're hearing about. I don't have the exact uh, information in front of me, but uh, we're working on it and we have been for quite some time because we know it's coming. So help break this down for our listeners because, 
you know, a lot of people may think, okay, so it becomes legal. Why? What's what's the problem? People can just open up a shop wherever they want. What are, what are the policy decisions and changes to the laws that cities control, municipalities control, that will have to change as a result of legalization? Well, sure. I mean, we're, some uh, communities are dealing with as many as 17 different departments that, ha- that this will impact. And we have things like land use planning and zoning decisions where, you know, some people are saying it, that we shouldn't have, you know, shops next to schools or, you know, so there's all those kind of issues. There's licensing, inspection of businesses. Uh, there's um, education about, uh, you know, uh, driving under the influence. There's training our police forces up with um, testing. You know, it just, it goes on and on. There's many, many, there's a great impact to us. When you have to consider where retail outlets go, what are the changes or restrictions that cities are considering when it comes to that? Well, it really varies from community to community um, because it, it depends on what uh, different communities want to, to have because we do have different zoning bylaws and rules and land use and plans. So, uh, but, you know, in different communities, we're hearing various discussions about do we want it near school or do we want to, some places might restrict it to an industrial area. You know, so there's all those kind of decisions and then the bylaws would have to be drafted our city zoning bylaws, you know, to adapt to that. And then whether what kind of licensing regime is there going to be? In some places it's public uh, liquor store type of thing. Some places it's private that is going to be doing it. So it's, so those are all the things we're sorting out right now. Uh, what about consumption? I think you mentioned that a little bit earlier. So where people can consume marijuana, if it's not exactly laid out at the provincial or federal level, um, what, what do cities have to take into account here? What do they have to consider? Well, again, we have smoking bylaws, you know, that uh, determine that. We had dealing with uh, vaping and all that, and now this is, I guess, essentially another thing that will have to be looked at, I'm sure, is one example. And and for smoking, I think it, it might be a little bit easier as to just include marijuana to all the other smoking bylaws that are out there. But what about edibles? I, I know it may be another year before the edible factor kicks in, but you will have people who might be making their own edibles at home after buying this. Will they be allowed to consume it in public places? Do you have to make sure that those bylaws are in in effect before edibles are even allowed to be put on sale? Yeah, again, that's another issue that um, we're examining all of those kinds of issues because um, those very real issues, there'll be emerging issues as we go forward. You know, and if you look at um, American jurisdictions where they've legalized, there's been a revenue stream that's gone to the local level of government in those models um, because of these types of things you're raising, that there's many areas where we're going to have to adapt what we do to uh, adjust to it and to work through how it's actually going to work. And a lot of those questions are being worked on right now. And uh, I I assume production, uh, because there are going to be a lot of craft growers that are going to be allowed as as a part of the proposed regulations brought forward by the federal government. Um, And, you know, provincial rules will also dictate whether you can have craft growers or not. But uh, if you do have, you know, smaller grower operations, do do cities have to consider whether or not uh, they're allowed in certain areas or not? Exactly. And as I mentioned, that's where we may have bylaw enforcement issues. Uh, you know, so there's many, many issues that, as I said at the beginning, we're on the front lines of this. We are, um, 
you know, from many, many different aspects of what municipal and local governments deal with, we're going to be responsible for managing and making this safe and, and effective, and, and it needs to be sustainable. We need to have the support to do it from the other levels of government. And I do want to come back to that funding issue. Um, you know, you, you want to see more money from the feds to try and help as cities uh, try and grapple this. The feds may say, you know, hey, we're giving money to the provinces. Uh, they have this excise tax structure where 50% goes to the feds, 50% goes to the provinces. Do you want to see some sort of uh, carve out there or determination that cities are insured a certain amount of money from the tax revenues of, of marijuana? Yeah, we need to have some kind of a mechanism that ensures that the local level of government, the impact on us is considered in that. And a lot of money may flow through the province, but you know we need to ensure that it flows to our the local level of government is considered in all of those discussions and we're at the table on those discussions and that's what we're we're trying to do and what would be an appropriate amount for municipalities um, well, we we haven't determined the precise costs right now because, as I mentioned, we don't necessarily even know the framework that it's going to be under. So um, we will be um, working on, you know, clarifying more and more what specifically that is. But we are very certain that we need to have a stream that's going to going to address that. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Jenny Gerbassi, the president of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and the deputy mayor for the city of Winnipeg. We were speaking about uh, the scramble for cities to try and get everything in order before the legalization of marijuana. Coming up after the break, we will have our final McLean's pen. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. It's now time for the final McLean's panel, and I'm joined by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean's Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you guys for being here. Great. Great to be here. Hi. Okay, so the first topic we want to discuss is something that, John, you've been digging into, mm -hmm. and it is uh, the fact of returning fighters who have gone abroad and fought with terrorist organizations like ISIS and coming back to Canada. How big of a problem is this and what is the government doing to address it? It's, it's, a, it's how big the problem is seems to have been a matter of debate, but as of the, late this week, the word coming out of the, uh, the Public Safety Minister's office, Mr. Goodell's office, is that there have been about 60 terrorist travelers, they call them, who've come back in the last 10 years. They say terrorist travelers, by the way, because foreign fighters don't really cover it. Some of these guys were terrorist financers. Some were propaganda writers for terrorist groups. So there's other, you're not just fighting, right? Anyway, so they have about 60 who've come back. And then they think there might be 180 or 190 out there who they know of, but who have not come back. Now, the gruesome truth is, is that uh, a good number of those 180 or 190 are probably dead. Um, they think a lot of them died in the uh, when ISIS was being routed in what they were calling their caliphate in places like Raqqa and Mosul. And so a good number are dead. A number more will have scattered to other Muslim countries where they feel like they can sort of uh, disappear, frankly. And then... The best estimate I've heard, although I think this is more a guesstimate than an estimate, is that maybe a third might try to make their way home. So you're not talking about huge numbers here. And the best uh, advice that I've heard anyone offer the government from people who are involved in uh, some research on this is what you should do is, like, 
not try to arrest and prosecute all those guys, because how are you ever going to pull the evidence you need to prosecute them out of the Middle East in these war-torn countries? You probably won't be able to do it. But what you should do is identify them as they come into the country, interview them, figure out everything you can about them, and then work, and this is the controversial part, then work on getting them reintegrated into Canadian society so they don't sort of fester here as wannabe terrorists. So... So, so complicated because I think most Canadians are not going to be sympathetic with the idea of spending time and effort to help these guys get reestablished in Canada. And I sympathize with that. But the question I would ask is, what is the alternative? And, and the UK foreign minister, I believe, said his alternative is tracking them down and killing them. But even in the UK and in countries like Denmark, what they really are doing beyond that kind of political rhetoric is, is actually working at trying to reintegrate. Britain has a program in this and trying to identify people and kind of do a de-radicalization program on guys who have already been you know, severely radicalized. A lot are coming back kind of traumatized and chastened by their experience in the Middle East, right? So, so these are misguided, possibly dangerous people, but you, know, you really have to sort of sort through them and figure out which are which. In Canada, thankfully, if, if the numbers we're hearing are true, we're really looking at maybe maybe 50 to 100 uh, individuals are going to have to be watched when they return. That's not a, a crazy number. In Britain, they're talking about hundreds. In continental Europe, thousands. So it's, it's a, it doesn't look like an unmanageable problem. Uh, Paul, do you think that the, there's a political risk here for the Trudeau Liberals talking more about reintegration than taking a tougher stance? Um, probably, but to some extent they'll lose votes they were already going to lose because of a general sense that the Liberals are not as tough on terrorism as the Conservatives are. But um, as John points out, some of, the, some of the remedies are a little nutty, some of the proposed alternative remedies. Uh, uh, hunting these folks down in Syria and killing them is a pretty major Saving Private Ryan type of enterprise involving, I, I guess, commando teams that would go into some of the worst neighborhoods in, in Raqqa and, and, and then what? Like show around the guy's photo and say, have you seen this guy? We were hoping we could pop him off, you know? And, and um, you know, integrating them back into society basically means uh, tracking them until it's become clear for some time that they're not involved in any kind of, uh, you know, further networking with other jihadist groups and stuff like that. Frankly, that's what Canadian security uh, personnel here domestically are doing nearly full-time now anyway. That's true. And so we're just going to do some more of that. So let's switch gears here from international terrorism to the issue of homelessness and affordable housing, and that's been thrust into the spotlight because we got the long-awaited national housing strategy from the Trudeau government this week. Uh, you know, a lot of big commitments, $40 billion between the feds, provinces, and private stakeholders. We've got 100,000 new affordable housing units that they say they're going to build, improving 300,000 as well as creating this new benefit for low-income Canadians to help them pay the rent. Paul, have they struck the right chord? Did they did they really nail this one and, and actually do this right? Or are there some deficiencies with uh, what they've put forward? Um, there are a lot of things that are unsatisfying, uh, almost in the nature of a large new social policy in an area that the feds had have have vacated for nearly a quarter century. Um, one is the very slow rollout. So it's just in the nature of the thing that that most of the really ambitious spending would happen after the hypothetical re-election of a liberal government. But... I also don't think it's possible to, to, to rush into these things, so I'm not sure that that's a real problem. But it, some people some people say it, it's a cop-out or it's a fake program or it's all words. That's one thing. The other is that it's lousy federalism. 
when the federal government just announces that it's going to that it's going to shoulder half the cost of a new national program, uh, some of our older listeners might remember the Meech Lake Accord, which sought to rein in uh, the federal government's ability to introduce new national shared cost programs because they were seen as distorting provincial responsibilities. That being said. I honestly don't remember a, a, a federal program delivered by any federal government of this magnitude in the quarter century that I've been covering politics that was aimed this specifically at the poorest Canadians yeah, rather than at the hypothetically forgotten middle class, which gets all important. the goodies. Super important. And when you give many thousands of people uh, a better chance to have a place to sleep, that has significant impacts on public health uh, and significant impacts on criminality. The Poorest Canadians are also the heaviest burden on the health system, and to some extent they don't have to be if they have uh, a more, more consistent chance to just sleep in a safe and comfortable home. You know, I agree with what Paul just said there about that. I think that's so important. The one thing that does bother me about the way this was ruled out is that the sensible and probably admirable elements of the program were buried under huge numbers. They insisted on slapping this $40 billion label on it, which I take your point, Paul, that things have to be rolled over time. There's no way to do it all in one year or something. But still, it, it, it breeds cynicism and skepticism when, when you have to sort through and go, wait a minute, that's $40 billion, that's assuming a bunch of provincial funding, and it's not coming until... And you know, it would be so much more... Uh, uh, it's so much easier to discuss this stuff in a pl in a clear way if the numbers that are being put on the table for relatively short term, even if you just say in the first fiscal year that we hope to have this fully up and running, it'll cost X, you know, and this is what we're looking at. Something that where you don't have to sort of recoil and say, is it really 40 billion? What what do you mean? Like 40 billion over a huge period of time, assuming provincial buy-in, if we get reelected, it just, it's hard to have a sensible discussion when that's the way it's being sold. All right, and we'll have to end it there, unfortunately, but thank you very much. Really appreciate your thoughts on all of this. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes, McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. As I've mentioned through this show, I do have some sad news. Unfortunately, this episode is the last of McLean's on the Hill. It's been a heck of a ride since we launched this show back in 2014. We've covered everything from cabinet shuffles to political scandals to historic election wins. And of course, each week we tried to bring you some in-depth analysis on the top political stories. We've had a lot of contributors over the years, but I do want to thank our former colleague, Aaron Wary, who helped get this idea off the ground. Paul Wells for his intelligent insights. And of course, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes for the incredible hard work and wonderful interviews that he's provided throughout the run of the show. The reason why I wanted to help launch this show 176 episodes ago is that I wanted to tell much more about the stories from Parliament Hill to get into the finer details that you don't always get to hear about in the regular daily news coverage, and, and as well to give you a different perspective of the issues that matter to every Canadian. The basic goal of journalism is to inform the public, and I truly hope that over the last few years, through McLean's on the Hill, we've been able to give you the facts, opinions, and analysis that allow you to have a better idea of how political policies, decisions, and actions 
impact your life. While this show may be ending, the news watch never stops. Keep listening to News 95.7, 13.10 News, 5.70 News, 6.80 News, 6.60 News, or News 11.30, or keep clicking on mcleans.ca for all of your news needs. But before we go, I do want to say that none of this would have been possible without you, the listener. So, whether you've been tuning in from the start, or you're one of the many people who have joined us in the past year, I want to say, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for listening to McLean's on the Hill.